Welcome to Ethereal Underground. I'm your host, TNT, and this is episode 28. Well, we have an interesting guest for you today, the listening audience. He's a good friend of mine. I guess we call it on the other side of the pond from Scotland, and it's Harry Neal. And just like I asked my other guests, I'll have Harry introduce himself and whatever he feels comfortable with, uh, general information, of where he grew up, what generation he is, a little bit about, about his family. And then he can bring us up to speed on uh, what he did uh, after his school years and if he has any interesting experiences he wants to share about his work or what type of career he's in, or maybe he's been in multiple careers. And then we can get into the interesting topic where he knows way more than I do. It's fascinating. But uh, about law, the different types of, of law that we have and uh, maritime law. And is there laws today that are misleading or is there a lot of corruption in law? I know that's probably pretty comical. <laughs> My answer would be, oh, of course there is, absolutely. But it's interesting, his taking the knowledge that he has to share with us tonight. And with that being said, appreciate him uh, being up late because he's uh, in a different time zone being in Scotland than here. So I appreciate that. And Harry, I'll let you start uh, introducing yourself to the Ethereal Underground audience. And... Uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your background. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, I came from a, a non-religious Scottish family. Um, one of three boys, I'm the eldest. Uh, my father, self-employed, um, as far back as I can remember, um, he was a plumbing engineer. And uh, we had a pretty comfortable childhood. Um, I was probably my mother's favorite, being the firstborn and the eldest. Um, the other two would certainly agree with that. Um, and the other two were probably more my father's because they were interested in the line of work that he did. Um, when we were kids growing up, we sort of had grandparents, four grandparents were around, um, a father by my mother's side, my mother's father. Um, there's uh, um, hold on, Harry. Hold on a second. There's there's some static on your microphone. I don't, are you moving around? Is it hitting a wire, or uh, uh, it it might be hitting uh, maybe hitting the side of yeah. my top of my jacket. I'll, t I'll take it off two seconds. Yep. Is that better? Yeah, because I heard I could tell it was a cord or something was rubbing against, and there was uh, static. There was a a little bit. Uh, yeah, hard for me to hear. What I did hear. Let's back up a little bit. If I did, I get this right that you're you're the oldest of, of three boys. Yeah. And were you? Did you say that you were maybe your mom's favorite, and the other two boys uh, maybe favored your dad, or your dad favorite? Yeah, there was. Did a, you repeat yeah. that? Yeah. 
Um, so growing up, it was always pretty obvious that um, I was my mother's favourite. Uh, she would deny that. I would deny that. But it was evidently clear. The two boys would always be definitely my father's favourites, and I, you know, they were they were their their preferred parent as well. Um, and I think as we were growing up as boys, the, the two younger ones, the middle one and the youngest, were more interested, intrigued by my father's line of work. So he was a plumbing heating engineer. Uh, they were very interested in that aspect of it. Whereas I was more on the creative side or give me a pencil and a sketchbook and I would sit for hours on end drawing and, and, and you know, um, playing with different techniques of, of art, sort of craft stuff. So I was creative in that aspect. Um, my mum my and dad are non-religious, um, although I was the only one um, out of the three that attended Sunday school, and this was a Christian Sunday school. Um, and that was linked to an aunt who I had grown quite a strong bond with uh, as a child growing up and almost went to hers religiously every Sunday um, for you know the afternoon to see her and my uncle. Um, and that involved going to church, uh, going to Sunday school, and coming home in the afternoon uh, after Sunday dinner with my aunt. And my aunt was um, legally trained um, in her profession. So my way of talking, um, being Scottish, it's sometimes very difficult to understand Scottish people. Um, but she articulated me as a child growing up to speak uh, very clearly. Um, I was introduced to um, some, certain circles of people in both the congregation um, and out with uh, the church that were business people. And I suppose in a way she, she integrated an uh, uh, um, etiquette that helped me become a little bit more advanced in my behavior as a child growing up than say my brothers, um, who were very much uh, the ones that you had to have eyes in the back of your head uh, if they were left alone for any period of time. Um, let, me, uh, yeah. let me cut in here. Just yeah. out of curiosity, this aunt that you'd spend a lot of time on Sundays, uh, yeah. with her, is that on your father's side or your mother's side? My mother's side. Your mother's, okay. So our family history, um, my mother's side is very strong rooted um, in the fishing and the farming uh, side. And it dates back way back to the 1700s in this area. Um, my father's side, uh, on his father's side, it only goes back to the First World War um, as far back as we can trace, and they were all um, contractors working in uh, sort of the works, road works, and, and that sort of thing. My father's mother, again, came from the fishing uh, side of the family. Um, so we historically were always drawn to the country living. We lived in the town, um, a small town with a population of about maybe 20,000 um, <clears> before. Uh, moving to the countryside when I was nine 
and um, we've we've never lived in a built-up area since. Um, even in adults, we've managed to acquire land near mum and dad and and build a house, um, you know, and we've we've lived quite close as a as we're a very close family in that sense, but not too close that it becomes uncomfortable for you know, the wives and partners and things. Um, so, yeah, so growing up uh, in school and things like that, I was never the popular kid. Um, I was always the sort of, uh, I, I could sort of recognise when I was quite younger that I, I was never one to um, follow a crowd. I, I seemed to articulate that it was better to be individual than it was to be one of the group. Uh, I was always last picked, you know, for any sort of um, things where you had to team up. Um, and I, I guess in a way, when you're growing up in that environment, you become aware of you're not the favourite when it comes to certain things. So you sort of grow a thicker skin because you, you don't want to get, be seen to be affected by that. Um, my brothers were <clears throat> quite popular. They had lots of friends and they were always out on weekends and, um, you know, playing other guys, in other kids' houses um, as they were, you know, sort of preschool and then into sort of the high school. My two best friends at high school were <clears throat> high school friends. There was no interaction out with high school. Um, it, that was just how it was. Um, and that was fine with me. I have find it when I was sort of at home on weekends and things um, I had no concept of time so if somebody had said oh we've got to wait you know for this train or this bus um, or so many days to this event taking place some people will dwell on that time period I would seem to be able to experience a five-hour wait to, feels like an hour I don't have any concept of time so when I noticed those sorts of things um, and I could see things differently to other people. So colours that other people can't see when they look at maybe a painting or a piece of clothing or a, a paint for applying to a wall. Um, it was quite picked up quite early on in high school that I was, you know, very um, artistic and, and I'd have a good eye for, for detail and things that, weren't maybe obvious to other people so from an artistic point of view I was horrendous at the written aspect of art exams but I was very good at the practical and a five-hour exam I could do within two hours and I remember getting a row from the the teach examination teacher that I'd finished way too soon for the exam but I said well I have finished and um, she asked me to leave and when I got the results of my practical artwork, it was uh, A. So I had done a five hour exam in two and a half hours and got top marks, but the teacher had said that it, I was finished way too quickly. So <clears throat> all through school, um, I understood that I wasn't a popular kid. I understood that I wasn't, um, I wasn't attracted to friends at weekends and I had this unique talent. Um, I almost had, I almost had two voice, almost had like a two double personality. I had a, a, a little voice inside my head that used to guide me and 
dismantling situations. So if I was um, in a situation where I felt that I was being, say, picked on, I could hear this other side of me say, don't react, just, you know, ignore little thing, we strange things like that. So that, that way of being as a child, I guess what it did was it sort of pushed me into an early adulthood. Um, when I say early adulthood, most my brothers, my friend, people I knew, you know, cousins were quite a big family in this area. Uh, we're all out, you know, drinking on the weekends, partying, going with this girl, going with that girl. Um, the usual teenager sort of antics. And I never was interested in that. Um, I was just fixated on business, uh, building this empire that I wanted to build. And um, always trying to run before I could walk. And I think a lot of the time I came up against a lot of barriers where uh, I felt that people were judging me because I looked too young. There's no way I could have the knowledge that they would need to, to do certain things. But as, as my, my high school years disappeared, um, I, I finished school in, in 2003. Um, so just to put things in context i'm 37 um born in 1985 um i took a year out of school um to just have a breather to work out what i wanted to do um got a job in a, a designing uh, bespoke furniture i was advised at that time it was a great industry to get proper hands-on experience um because everything's down the millimeter and my initial focus um, work-wise was to get into interior design. I love the concept of creating spaces that would offer the individual recipient of that space the chance to escape. Because it's quite funny, I've listened obviously to yourself, Jet, for a long time now, and. I understand more about box scenario and, and how nothing in nature is straight lined. It's 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 curvature and it's you know it's it's not a box. It's the, the box is more the the create the you know the, the the more satanic side. If that's right, if I'm wrong, correct me. But my my thesis was that I could change people's um, the feng shui ambience and general energy of their life by bringing my visions to to offer them as part of my interior design services. So I entered the college a year after leaving school, so 2004, 2005, and I did a fast uh, study uh, introduction to interior design. And I got a little bit bored of the whole college setting um, I, I felt at that point that I was one of like 50 in the class. We're all being taught the same thing. And I thought, well, there's 50 designers in here that are going to enter the, the workplace with the same programming as one another. And we're all within a, maybe a hundred mile radius of each other. So I, after the first year of study, I went to see my tutor and I said to, to him, I hope this doesn't come across wrong, 
but 50 people in this class are all learning the same curriculum from the same you know teacher or or or, or um i can't remember what you call lecturer what 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 can scotland the area we're in cope with 50 designers all trying to find work and he said yes but only two or three years will make it because the rest will end up in employment or they might go into a line of work that's connected to interiors but he says if you want a tip he says the best way is the old way and that's go and get a job somewhere learn on the job and you'll be untouchable so when i went into back into the furniture design the company promoted me to a new branch because the sales that i was doing with using the design aspect people were coming into the studios asking for me by name and i was getting a reputation for being really good at creating um products that other people were inspired by and wanted so my career sort of spanned over 2005 i'm going to fast speed up to maybe 2006 7 when it was put across to me by a australian girl that i should be doing this somewhere else where it'd be more appreciated and then where i live in scotland it's there's it's there's not a lot of opportunities unless you're in the bigger cities so you're sort of like you're earning a living and you're doing okay but you're not breaking any major barriers um when you go down to like say expeditions in birmingham which is in england um london you're walking around with designers that um are not as see with growing up with family in the trade father was a plumber cousins were electricians uncles were joiners you ha- you sat at the kitchen table often in evenings and would hear conversations about issues they've had that week with work technical stuff relating to plumbing and parents built two houses as i was a child growing up so i experienced the construction element of a home and as a designer it's one thing to design something it's another to understand how it goes together so that unique insight and understanding of a tradesman's perspective of how to create something that i would design helped me to put things together in a way that other designers couldn't a lot of designers will design something without thinking about how it's going to be constructed and that was often their downfall so when i went overseas uh, through an invitation with my friend, introduction to her sister, who was who lived in Dubai and had been in Dubai um, for a number of years. Dubai at the time, uh, I couldn't put up a specific date when she moved out, um, but I'll say the the, the mid nineties, um, early nineties, when Dubai was really just starting to take off. It was just one big road, Shakeside Road. There was a Hard Rock Cafe. At one end, in the bottom, there was a Toyota garage uh, building, um, and her father was part of the 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 body that went out to help um, the the the, the sheikhs set up Emirates Airline, and he was one of the main advisors, and his daughter had set up this uh, real estate business um, in Dubai 
and offered me the chance to go there, sit in the office, uh, talk to clients, potential buyers, a lot of Americans, um, pilots for Emirates moving to relocate, um, looking to have their homes redesigned to make them feel more at home. A lot of the properties in Dubai were designed by Indian firms, um, trying to get the American look, but not quite achieving it. So we would, my, my idea of me being there in her office was to give clients uh, that service if, if they wanted it. And that experience was great, but unfortunately the, the time frame that I went out for the month's experience was just before the crash of 2008, 2007, 2008. And when I eventually decided to move out, um, the crash had literally had hit the UK, had hit the States. Dubai was a little bit in denial that it was there, but it was very much there. Um, uh, I mean, I was arriving from the airport and I had said to you earlier, Jet, that there was Ferraris parked uh, in the car park. The ignition still running, one or two of them. Uh, different vehicles, uh, but in particular, there was this one red Ferrari that was sat at the drop-off point, and it was running with the keys in ignition. There was no one there, and I looked at my friend, and she says, "It's a bit strange seeing that, isn't it?" And I said, "Yeah," because what is that about? She goes, "That's someone who's literally just parked the car and went to the airport and went home." And I said, "Why on earth would you do that?" And she explained, "In Dubai, if you don't pay a phone bill." The police have your registration plate in their computer system and they will be looking for you on behalf of the phone company, the utility company. So it's a very different way of dealing with debt in that area than it is from where I'm used to. Um, so that was quite scary. But the reassurance I had at the time was I was going into employment out there. And they, are you still there, Jack? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when, Sorry, you told me that, when you told me that story, mm -hmm. uh, two things came to my mind. I thought, well, what Harry's mentioning, if I ever worked in Dubai, one thing, instead of a Ferrari, I think I would own a scooter. Yeah. So if I left the keys running in the scooter, no big deal. And I certainly would make sure I paid my telephone bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this is the thing. So as I spent more time in Dubai, obviously questions and conversations I was having, you know, my friends are, her, um, her real estate business went from, well, the first month I was there went from um, 62 sales representatives down to literally 12 in a, in a month. And it was things, for example, the husband worked for this company she was getting great commission when she was selling property. All of a sudden that stopped. But these people had built up a lifestyle, you know, the very big house they couldn't afford, uh, the flash two car, one car each. Um, you know, it's, it, it's very cheap to live in Dubai, but the lifestyle is expensive because everybody seems to want to keep up with everybody else. I guess like it is everywhere, but in particular, I used to do the school runs with my friend um, before we went to the office uh, because I, used to, I was living with her till I got my own place settled. Um, and I've never seen people from, to put into perspective, in Scotland where I lived, I spent 
most of my time in a pair of wellies, uh, a tweed jacket, and often scruffy because you're, you're never, in, you, you don't step out your front door into a nice concrete slab and walk from that into a luxury car and then to the shop to grab a coffee. You have to maybe avoid certain objects flying around if it's windy, uh, if it's wet, you're going to be walking on chuckies, which might have, excuse my language, chicken shit, dog shit, if you've not picked it up, um, lying around. So you, in Dubai, the school run, these people were dressed like we would dress to go a wedding dance. They were immaculate. The, the, the latest designer clothing. I mean, for me as a young designer, it was inspiring to see what potentially life, the lifestyle could be like if I wanted that. But I, I'm not going to bore everybody with too much about the Dubai story. What I would like to sort of fast track to on this point is, after nine months of being in Dubai, I realized the city was a lonely place. When I got my own apartment and I was working a lot, I was doing you know big projects, big budgets. I was traveling down Jakeside Road and it was, I think eight lanes, I'm trying to remember, eight lanes one direction, eight lanes the other way. And I had a little higher car, it was Toyota Yaris. And they just filmed the UK X Factor on Palm Island. And this Rolls Royce passed me on my right-hand side. And I believe it was Kylie Minogue and her sister who transferred from Palm Island to the airport after their filming. And I often used to sit in the car and see all the other cars and I would look and everybody's just heading the same, the same area every day and I thought this is like some type of trance everybody's on you know okay if I don't work I don't get money I don't pay the bills but when you see everybody doing the same thing every day and then the weekends would come everybody goes out the same places they go maybe just a slightly different location my, my brain was starting to articulate these people's movements and behaviors as odd but it was everyday life and then I would come home after a week's work I'd be invited out the next day for brunch that was always great fun um I'd also be invited out that evening for drinks at a nice bar that was also great but it was every weekend I was getting invited and sometimes I was like no I don't I don't want to go out this evening and I would have that moment in my apartment I had no tv I had no uh, Wi-Fi. I had a page-to-go phone. Um, you know, these these are the this is the time when iPhones were just coming out. This is the days of Blackberries, and you didn't have uh, the quite the technology we have now. Um, so I had my laptop. I had music, uh, just my thoughts, and, and and watching the city below, twenty-two stories up, in JBR. And I met this pilot from Emirates. And this is probably one of the most poignant moments of my uh, understanding of things suddenly changing. Come from a small area in Scotland where when the news is on because my mum wants to watch it. We, 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 we watch the news and, oh, it's terrible what's happening in the world. Never really questioned it, but I never really paid much attention to the news in general. My other brothers would and my mother and father would. And I could just watch them sort of intertwining in conversation regarding the news. Um, this pilot, who was Danish, 
um, asked if I would, and I knew him and his wife for many weeks while I was there, they were very kind to me. She was from Turkey and uh, she worked for my friend Zara's company as a sales agent. And we became like a little mini family out there and they were very kind. Asked if I would watch their little daughter while they nipped to the shop. So she was sleeping in her cot and I, before they left, Lars had said to me, I'm going to put on this disc. I want you to watch it. It's called Loose Change. And it was about the 9-11. He says, when I come back, I want to know what you think. And it was about how the American government, the Bush administration, had done that to the American people and showed you the, the evidence to support the claim, the gold being removed from the Twin Towers, the, whatever time before, the, the insurance policy being updated and doubled or whatever, Building 7 or whatever number it was, was applied to be demolished, it was refused, but it suddenly disappeared when the towers came down. All these things, even the lamppost outside the Pentagon, lying flat, not in half. If a plane crashes into a lamppost at a speed, it obviously, like a twig, it's going to break. It's not going to just fall over. And that really changed my perspective on information. That combined with the fact that I had a visit from my family very briefly in September. I moved out in the March of uh, twenty. 2008, um, my family came out to see me for a visit in the uh, September 2009, um, and I I felt the, the the vibrations of home, and I've always had this strange thing about Scotland. When you're from Scotland, you you feel a pull back. Uh, I'm not sure. If anybody else can relate to that, if from a certain place in the world you feel a pull back. But I felt the pull. And I, I was, I suppose, when you don't have access to internet, uh, TV, radio, you just have what you have on a laptop, you start, you sort of start listening to your inner thoughts more, you start looking at things differently. Um, I guess you have a moment on your own to, to find out a bit more about yourself without possibly even realizing it. Um, and I suddenly decided there and then that Dubai wasn't for me. There was something about the city I didn't like and I couldn't put my finger on it. I felt more lonely in the city than I did in the countryside and there was less people around me in the countryside than there was in the city. So. On that conclusion, I got a phone call that following week with an invitation to meet a royal of Dubai who, well, uh, uh, Russell Kema, which is a little setting just outside Dubai. And he was one of seven brothers um, who were bowling along this cliff. And I went to see him and introduced to him by... Uh, my other designer friend who was the upholstery side and uh, I don't think I've ever went to an appointment before in my life where the camel is itching itself against the car and the car's moving um, pretty uh, crazy with the with the weight of the camel rubbing itself. Uh, I go to the gate and the guy has a, a $20,000 chihuahua 
that's no bigger than a pair of Ugg boots, one Ugg boot, and uh, what looked like a very exotic hat. And it wasn't a lion, but it was something else. And I, I still don't know to this day what it was, um, but I was told strictly not to part the car and uh, on the way in. And I said, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to imagine it's a golden retriever. Because I said, if I, my brain tries to register that that is something that could eat me, I don't think I'll win the house. And uh, this guy was very eccentric. Uh, no budget was not a problem. He showed me this, the floor plan of the house and he wanted the full house designed, all done. But he had heard through my friend Claire that I am very good at freehand sketches. So he asked if I would kindly draw a freehand sketch uh, of the hallway uh, from the plan. So I sat and drew from my mind what I had, how I could visualise the hallway. And I don't know why, but there was this ornate chair in the hall that I put in with this printed skin, which would you could say was like a, a tiger kind of print. Um, I don't know why that was put there, but I put it there uh, as, a, as a texture material to show a bit of uh, depth to the, the, the setting. And he said, I really, really like what you've done. Will you be able to transfer this to 3D render also? And I said, not a problem. And I gave him uh, an idea of the fees for design. He said, can I keep this sketch? And I says, yes, yeah, sure. Um, he says, well, I'll send some money to the office for, for, for that as a gift to say thank you. So we left and he said he'd be in touch regarding the house you send the drawings through. So we get back to the office. Um, my friend Zara gets a call to say that he's very happy with myself, very happy with Claire, can't wait to work with us on the new property and there may well be another six after his if, if it continues this way. And there was a payment uh, made to Zara's account, business account, for $35,000 for this sketch that took less than 20 minutes to draw. And he asked if I would come and inspect some fabric uh, next, the following week for this chair, because he's got this chair already that looks similar to the one in the sketch. He would like to meet come and inspect this fabric. I said, yes, no problem. He says, it will be at the airport. So if you meet me at the airport um, in th this area, so me, Claire knew where she was going. She'd been there for years. So we go along and we're taken into a back area of the airport, which is like private jets, private delivery, I guess the Arab zone section. And on these trolleys, you sometimes see the cases getting taken out to the planes. One of these trolleys was in a back room and it was like almost a freezer kind of setting because it was very cold. And it was because anything exotic that Arabs order in it has to be kept in certain climate for, to protect it from, I guess, the heat. And opens up this paper opening and lo and behold, we have an orange tiger skin. And I felt every part of my body tense. And I looked at my friend Claire and she is 
vegetarian. She is against anything like that. And we sort of just didn't react, but we just said, oh, that's very unusual. And he said, well, this is the fabric I think I want to put on that chair. And, and I says, all right. I says, um, I, I just played dumb. I says, is that real skin then? And he said, oh, yes, it's the finest. It's, it's very hard to get. He says, this, this is, you never get this anywhere else. And I says, all right, okay. I says, well, I thought, how the heck do we get out of this? I says, oh, well, I'm sure we can work with that. That's not a problem. I says, well, that's fine. We, we've got the fabric. I says, we're way off from that point anyway. We've got to establish the the general theme of the room, the colour scheme, all the other things to see if that will fit in with the overall uh, project. Oh, yes, I understand. I just wanted to let you know that we can get anything you want us to design, you want to design in the room. And it was at that point, I think the combination of the $35,000 for the sketch, the tiger skin, the city being the lonely place, and the drive down Shakeside Road, where there was everybody going in the same direction, I just had hit a brick wall. And what I realised is at 24 years old, 25 years old, I could quite quickly be excelled into a position of, of significant wealth uh, for my age. And if I took that back home at that point after making that, I'd be very comfortable for the rest of the days. That and the fact that people had no, didn't seem to have any reality in a sense of conscience of, you know, their, their actions. And I'm not one of these people who's obsessed with save the planet, save the animals, but I am conscious of the fact that if my sketch had influenced that gentleman to request <clears throat> the kill of an animal that's, a, that's endangered for the sake of looking pretty in a corner in a chair, I felt as if my line of work was feeding the plastic and leather world. So. I was feeding a low vibration desire for things that are not really that important. So the money I was earning was off of the off of something that wasn't wasn't as if it was a something to be proud of. Certainly, some interiors that you do, it's not as extravagant as that. You you see certain things come to life. You think it looks amazing, light and design, and that really put things into perspective for me. So I decided that Christmas to return home and not return back. And when I did return home, uh, I felt that I had did the right thing. I felt contentment and the rest of my life thereafter sort of um, started to go in a different direction. But rather than young, independent, so entrepreneurial, it went from more content meet my 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 wife at the time was my girlfriend for a few years engaged after two years of um, dating then we moved in together um we were rented for a while we got then let some land for my grandfather we built a house a beautiful house that I designed um and my, my son came along um, in the 2017. So from sort of coming back home 2010, 
to kind of engage 2012, to be married 2014, to have my first child 2017. 2013 to 2017, I had started up a company, which was a design company, and it really took off. Taking the concept of how I was operating in Dubai to Scotland was welcomed significantly because it was a completely different way of dealing with design. Instead of giving a client a storyboard with all these fabrics and colors and little sketches and asking the client to imagine that in their room, I was able to take the, a 3D software system to the interior design side in Scotland, which we're always 10 years behind London. London's what, 10 years behind Europe um, when it comes to certain methods of, of work and how they operate. So my business took off. I built a beautiful house, you know, myself without any help from the bank. It got to a point with a house that um, I needed to let, borrow some money from the bank to, to finish it because it was very unusual. So it was costing a lot more than I had anticipated spending. Um, the banks uh, at the time wouldn't entertain us because it wasn't livable. Um, that was a problem because I had an asset here and I had owned it. It was on you know, my own land. There was no debt attached to it, but the criteria was if you couldn't, you know, cook and wash in the house, which we were needing the money for the kitchen and the bathroom stuff, that was the stuff that we were outstanding. We looked at other measures of extracting money to finish because all our savings were poured in. We eventually got uh, funding through a more expensive route, which is where you. Um, it's like a, I can't remember the terminology for it. Um, it's where you get a loan, but you don't pay back the loan. You pay a month rental for the loan. It's very expensive. Bridging loan, that's what it's called. So we had a six-month window to finish the house, in which case we could apply for the mortgage to complete on the, the property uh, contract with the bridging loan. We did it. We got the bridging loan paid off with a small mortgage loan to value we had like 20% mortgage we owned 80% of the house brilliant ideal um, so that was all the debt I had so my business was doing very well you know I, I, I grew up obsessed with cars the whole design structures you know the shapes I loved certain brands I wasn't because of the brand it was just a love I was always drawn to things by the design of them, shape and, and the way the light reflected on what color of paint it was or whatever. Um, Jet, I'm just checking your story there because you're really quiet. Hello? Yeah, you're coming in fine. Yeah, so I was just checking your story there because <laughs> do you want me to stop? You want to ask me anything or? Well, uh, I figured when you brought us up to this point, you're getting ready to uh, maybe explain. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm so sorry if you're on com com common law. <laughs> yeah, common law or the the legalese that you ran into. Yeah, I'm getting to yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, 
in 2017, my son was born um, in the March. Now, in the August, sorry, the October of that year, we had booked a holiday to South America. My wife um, is half Colombian. Um, I won't go into how that's how that happened, but her father's from Colombia, her mother's from, from, from Scotland, and they met when they were younger and traveling the world. Anyway, um, we went to South America, uh, to Colombia, Pereira, which is a small hop, a one-hour flight from Bogota. London to Bogota is an 11-hour flight, and Aberdeen to London's an hour. So... It was a big deal for us because she was meeting family that she'd never met. And my son being, I guess, quarter Colombian, or Scottish, it was quite significant. So my, my wife at the time had been complaining about being ill uh, before the holiday, migraines, all the rest of it. Anyway, four days into the holiday, she became very ill. And the four days of the, the holiday... Uh, she hadn't been able to get out of bed from arrival. Um, nobody could diagnose what was wrong. The doctors that were sent were trying to administer medication that I wasn't comfortable with. I had a friend in the UK that I was liaising back and forth with who actually advised me to get her home. Um, it was probably one of the worst experiences of my life, taking an eight-month-old that the mother stops breastfeeding because um, all the milk sort of dries up. Uh, she's lost a lot of weight. She wasn't big in the first place. Um, get back to the United Kingdom eventually with great difficulty. I'm not going to go into the whole traumatic journey back. But I'm sitting in, in my house. I have a very big booking uh, diary full of jobs when I return back from the holiday. And I was actually back well before the holiday was finished. So I had a chance to maybe think about things, review things. The, my, my, ex, my, my ex-employee um, who, was, who had helped me previously before I went on holiday, um, I had to let go because I wasn't in a position to possibly support an employee in the business at the time with the prospect that I might have to postpone work. Um, it, my wife was confirmed and diagnosed um, to have had a very rare form of cryptococcal meningitis. Um, we don't know how she contracted it. Um, it was just very bizarre, but we were lucky we got her home. That situation meant that I was now the full-time mother and father of my son while balancing travelling 60 miles daily to see my wife and her recovery. Well, she was a long way off for recovering at that point, but you think positive at that time. The money that I had, savings and things like that, it was good. I was, I was good for a while. But I had very expensive taste. I had acquired some expensive cars while business was moving well. Everything was going well. And I thought, you know, this could be a problem. Uh, I only own a percentage of them. I don't own the full thing. It's financed. Um, so I contacted the finance companies and the mortgage company just to see where I would sit in a situation where I got into some difficulty. My wife's ill and 
I have to be the mum and dad and I have to look after my wife when she comes home. I can't work. Do I have anything in place to, to, to get like a holiday or something just to I get past this difficult time? And it felt the presence of an industry that was very much will give you everything you want when it's going well, but when it's not going well, they won't give you anything. And I thought, that, that's a bit weird. Why would you do that? So that's when I started to see things weren't making sense to me. And I guess my curiosity on that aspect of things brought about conversations with certain groups of friends and business and, and private. And I got introduced to somebody that, that was a very close friend um, who introduced me to another. Um, I can't say any names here uh, in particular, Jet, because I don't want to um, reveal who they are, but they showed me some things that really, I could, I remember it well, it put me in a situation where I wanted to ignore it. I didn't want to accept that it was real. How could it be possible that at that age in my life, 32 years, has been a complete and utter lie? Why would I not have known or seen this for what it was? And I just couldn't touch it. I couldn't pick it up. I could not, I didn't want to know for about a good six months. And I would say it was six months into, you know, not working. I delayed projects, put clients off, clients went elsewhere, clients canceled, they weren't going ahead. It was a mess. So I had a, a very nice whiskey collection that went to the auction, did very well. That gave me a bit of breathing space. I sold the cars, paid back the money, kept one car that was mine, and I managed. But all the time I couldn't put down this information. And in 2019, I met my legal advisor who gave me the option to submit a notice to the Pope. Because the Pope is the keeper of all souls. Now, basically, it, we all have a birth certificate. Now, I don't know what it's like for your listeners yet in the States, but in the UK, if you want to set up a company, a limited company, limited company just means that you're protected from liability if your company goes into liquidation. Uh, but... You, you have to display your financial records online. Um, but if you're a sole trader, that's somebody who's not limited, who's taken personal liability for their company. They're not protected by the limited company. Uh, they don't have to display their books online, but they're a business as a sole individual. So they have a unique tax code. They have to do accounts. They have to pay tax like you do everywhere. The moral of the story is, to have a business, you've got to create a business name. 
and you run that business separate to the private individual. But it links to the private individual. Well, that's what the birth certificate is. It's a commercial hidden trust that in the United Kingdom was created to allow the maritime jurisdiction to contract with you every possible level. And it begins with your mother or your father. The minute you're born, there's a thing called a live born record, the heel prick, the blood sample, the weight of the child and the family name, the sex. That thing called a live born record suddenly disappears in nowhere. You try getting one back after you're, you, you've left the hospital for a week. The nurse can't find it. Oh, it's been put, it's been destroyed. No, it's not. It's been collected. That's then forwarded to, if you like, the farmer of the herd in the United Kingdom, which would be the monarch, the fake queen. And I'll get to reasons why she's the fake queen. She then gets, as I understand it, the weight of the child in a payment of gold or silver. I think it's gold. And she then forwards that live-born record off to the Pope, who has the miles of vaults of certification under the Vatican, holding the Keeper of All Souls. The Queen then awaits the mother, the informant, to register the child with the death birth marriages which as informant, she is literally just given her child to the state. So the state now own the child. That's why if the mother turns to alcohol and drugs and she doesn't behave herself, the child services will turn up with a birth certificate in the one hand and remove the child against the mother's will. Because in their eyes, the child belongs to the state. So that's the first thing you've done. You've given your child up to the state. But what they're not aware of is the child never gave consent, was not of age to give consent to be attached to a document such as the birth certificate. When that birth certificate is created by the mother being informant, it's then a bond's created. And that unique birth certificate number is then traded on the stock market. Now, if you go into Infidelity or Trust Online, um, Treasury Online, sorry, and type in the birth certificate number, or if you're in the UK, you've got a unique CHI number, which is your national insurance number, sorry, your medical number, it shows that they're trading it and who owns it. Shows you what it's worth. Why is that? Why is a birth certificate on the stock market? That's because they trade everything. Your driving license number, your mortgage number, your finance agreement number, um, your passport number, everything is a bond trading because it links to the commercial entity, which is the legal person, which is you on paper. Now, that's one aspect of how it all begins. 
So you're driving down the road, as I was, um, a few times I've been pulled over randomly. Um, the police stop you. Now, the police are going to ask you for your name and date of birth. You want to establish what, what's happened. Have you committed a crime? Oh, well, we don't know yet until you tell, give us your details. But well, why do I have to give you my details? Well, we have to establish if you are who you say you are and that you haven't done anything wrong. Well, wait a minute, officer. There's a number plate in the vehicle. That tells you if the car's insured and if it's taxed. And then at Kingdom, friend who doesn't know, you need to have valid insurance. You have to have road tax for your vehicle. Um, if you don't have these things, it usually flags up the police car's camera system by your number plate. So you'd think they would know why they're pulling you over, if it's obvious as that. But often they're not pulling you over for, for any particular reason. They're just doing it because that's what police that around here certainly do, and they've got nothing better to do. Um, when you, they ask you for your information, they are trying to contract. There are, so if you imagine you have the Queen, you have her government, then you have the other bodies like the councils. In the United Kingdom, councils are uh, departments that look after different districts, rubbish removals, schools, um, medical libraries, all those sort of things. And then you have the police, which are different areas in the United Kingdom. You've got Highlands, you've got Murray, you've got Aberdeenshire, Inverness, sort of thing. So the police themselves need your name, date of birth to get anywhere with you. If you refuse to give that information, you'll be arrested for failing to give your information at the roadside. But when you look back at the birth certificate, it states at the bottom, certainly the United Kingdom, that it's not proof of identification, it's only a record of an event taking place. If it's not proof of identification and it's only a record of an event taking place, I suddenly wonder how my mother got my bank account when I was a kid. And then I wonder how I got my first passport. I then wonder how I got my driving license because if my driving license is off my passport, my passport's off my, my birth certificate. The bank account that my mum opened when I was a kid for a savers account when I was a kid, it must have been off the birth certificate. But it's not identification. So how have they identified me? Wait a minute. How did I get my mortgage? How can the police arrest me for failing to give my information to the roadside when I can't identify myself? But they'll claim you have to give your information. The minute you give the name that's on the Crown document, which is the birth certificate, you become the um, liable guarantor of that trust. It's a trust. It's a hidden trust. It means there's beneficiaries. There are trustees. And there are witnesses to that. And the witness would be the Crown in the UK's eyes. So any claim coming forward, it must have the witness first-hand knowledge, which would be the, the beneficiary, the trustee of that estate. That's why they get you to have solicitors in court. That's why they get 
to have statutes and acts because everything in their system is about performance. You put in a performance, we play to an act, a statute. The judge wears a wig, a black robe. They're all in theatre. You know, it's the only thing that gives it realism is the people that believe it's real. Am I making sense, Jack? Yes, we uh, we just have these conversations uh, quite a bit that it's a theater, it's an illusion, yeah. uh, maritime law and their procedures and that our birth certificate is leveraged and traded on the stock markets and then they, the straw man and the yes. spelling of names and capital letters and <clears throat> trying to trick the human population into buying in to this illusion yeah. and getting us to participate in this theatrical spectacle of their legal system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you understand it and you understand, for example, there is no legislation in the United Kingdom and their maritime system, their jurisdiction, that says they can legally, the legal person can identify themselves. Now, if, if, you, if you hold on to that thought for a brief second, it brings in the Interpretations Act. Brings in the Interpretations Act 1889, section 19. Now, if you're ever bored and you want to have a look online, you should check that out. Because what it does is it shows that there is a problem in their system. If a legal person referring to the birth certificate cannot identify themselves, legally speaking, then how is the judge qualified to perform their duties in a court setting when they themselves are acting as a legal person would have done to acquire the qualifications that they are using to act as a judge, everybody in the courtroom would be, would we be participating in fraud? Would you not agree? Correct, yeah. So anyone who claims they can identify themselves are admitting that we're all part of a slavery system then. Right. Because that's what the birth certificate represents, slavery. Because the Brit let's be fair, the British Empire is not short of history when it comes to slavery. So what's different in modern era? They've just hidden it well. They put, they, they, they've, they've given us all these lovely, wonderful, shiny things and kept us in a competitive state of mind that we're too distracted with. I don't know about me, most of your viewers, Jet, but a lot of people I grew up with are obsessed with the race to the end of life, that they somehow need to get to this certain point of comfortableness to be able to relax. But it never happens. The system is designed in a way that from the minute you hit school, you learn to write your name. It's brainwashed into you through school that you, 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 you this is your name, you write it this way, you do all caps, lower caps. Even the maritime system, Mr. and Mrs. Ms. That's all, that's all, um, uh, oh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for it? Martial kind of style, uh, you know, army kind of regimental process. That's we're at war, you know, with that whole way of writing. The wording, the language, it's all manipulated. So we say what we don't realize we're saying. For example, human means monster. I've got human rights. Yeah, sure you have. You're a monster. Uh, I'm a person. I'm a citizen. What, on, you know, on board a ship? Because if you're on board a ship, you've invaded the land. So I sit under the easy classical oath to my the one true divine creator, which is the almighty in, in, in the context of your recent discussions. And I followed for a long time, Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, that's who I, that's my master. No one else, no judge, no government. These people are all pertaining to something else that it's not natural to me. And I'll tell you why as well. Can I Queen say Elizabeth. something about that real yeah. quick? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Because uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're getting, uh, we might have to set this up for a part two because we're already want, over an oh, hour. Sorry. Right, but you, you're correct in laying this foundation of basically smoke and mirrors, a mm -hmm. fraudulent maritime law system, fancy paperwork. Mm -hmm birth certificates, signatures, uh, definitions, and they're trying to get the world's population to buy into this illusion that under this theater, they would have certain powers and jurisdictions. But what this really boils down to is a, a very advanced legal battle at a non-human level which yeah. hardly anyone understands. And I hate to say it, the majority, 99.9% .9 of the world's population don't care either to learn the truth of what's really going on. They do not care to listen to this episode or care about what I'm about to say. Well, that's on them. That's on yeah. them. But yeah. legally, this dynamic energy, these uh, ecclesiastical oaths, all life in all dimensions, as it's found and as it's defined, we're familiar with our species, our race in this dimension, but there's other life forms yeah. that exist. Uh, we not, might not be able to see or hear or touch them, but life in all its different forms and different dimensions is owned, claimed ownership is by this dynamic energy the ancient texts mentioned as a, a Yahweh or an English Jehovah, and it appears in other translations. Yeah. There are entities, multidimensional entities, that have argued claims of ownership, and they claim ownership. So the ancient texts and the biblical canons refer to Satan and the demons or these fallen spirit entities. Some were watchers, earlier watchers of uh, mankind, but they are claiming ownership. The only problem is their claim is fraudulent. So they've worked with 
certain bloodlines, certain human family lines, very old ancient family lines to construct a theater of garbs, robes, wigs, uh, fancy wording, fancy settings to trick human individuals, you and I, the world population to trick us into giving them jurisdiction over us as a sovereign entity that's really owned by this dynamic energy, the most high. And if they get enough individuals, what I talk boots of the ground, and maybe we can discuss more of this on a part two, if there's enough people that buy into this theatrical spectacle, governments in the legal system, police, military, the problem that I find is you and I, you know this better than I do, but we can have an idea of how this construct of maritime law is structured, the trickery of definitions and legalese to get us to buy into this theatrical spectacle. If we don't buy into it, we're like, no, this isn't right, and here's why. They always have enough knuckle-dragging, low-IQ individuals with guns on their hips tasers and billy clubs that they illegally can beat you over the head. They can handcuff you. They can throw you in prison. And then you've got prison guards. You have a warden as well as judge and lawyers that all buy into this. So as long as you're outnumbered by 20, 30, 1,000, 10,000, 30,000 other human beings that are employed by this maritime law, by governments, by police forces, by prisons, those 30,000 so-called humans that are misled and they're uneducated, they overpower you and I, they're in the wrong, but since they have the guns and they have the billy clubs and they have the brute force, we can spend life behind bars illegally at a universal level. And then it has to be settled when? After our death, at the highest level, at the level of the divine, the creator. And that's that's where we've always, that's my take. We've always been, captive, those that know and have bothered to take time to investigate what's really going on, we will always be billy club, tasered, hung, handcuffed, firing squad, guillotine, because there's always thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of humans that buy into this, they're ignorant, and they will simply trample and overpower the handful that know better, like you and I. That's yeah. what I, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of bits I've left out. It would be here all night, all, all week if I started going into the guts right. of some of the yeah. things. But I mean, I've, I've seen these, these programmed uh, s slaves for these, for the system of things working their magic. I mean, I've been arrested. I've refused to give information. I've been in a cell for two hours and then let go. I've asked, they've asked me for my DNA and fingerprints, my body, not your property, no way back in the cell, then out. You know, these things are all the things that you have to go through. And I remember when they were unfolding, I, I, I actually knew that I had to go through these experiences in order to experience the magnitude of this system at its worst. And when I'd seen it for what it was, I seen a pattern to their system. When it's broken and you stick to it from the get-go, you don't give them the one thing they need, and that is the name. You need to give them none of it their whole thing falls apart. And it's funny to watch because their system is all about documents and, and, and processes, but it cannot do anything until you give them that one thing. But you're right, they come in armies of, of different levels of, of brainwash material. 
but they all come back to the same thing. They all have to carry a recorded exercise. And when it when you're articulated in a certain way in documentation and that, they, they find it very hard to enforce anything. But one of the things, Jet, that I find wakes people up, it's the thing that hurts them the most and the thing that's going to hurt them the most when this system really goes pop is we've all heard Klaus Schwab say, you'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. Correct. Well, let me tell your audience this. In, I'll talk from the United Kingdom perspective here because I don't know what it's like in America. In the UK, when you buy a house, your lawyer puts it on a thing called the land registration, land registry, right? Now, whether you've bought it outright or you've mortgaged it or you half own it or your mum and dad gave you it, it goes on the land registry. The minute it goes on the land registry, it's owned by the state. It's not owned by you. That's why they can take it and knock it down, compulsory purchase it, if you they want to decide to want to put a roadway through your house, or if you don't pay a bill and they want to take a bankruptcy order, oh, this legal person's got a property on the land registry, we can take that. Because technically, legal people, persons, cannot own a thing. If you look at the small print, that's why you put it on the land registry, so you remove your ownership. The car is the same. We have the DVLA in the United Kingdom. You look at your V5 document. If you bought that car with your own hard-earned money, why are you referred to as someone who's looking after it and not someone who owns it? It's so that if you don't, if you, so you don't pay the road tax, they take it off you and crush it. Or if the police want to pull you over because you farted in the car and it looked like you did something else, they can attach a fine, points. And if you don't pay that and you don't communicate with them, they'll lift your car and pound it. You'll have to pay to get it back. And if you don't pay to get it back, they'll crush it. So it's all ways to remove the birth certificates, how they remove the ownership of your child. So there's always something between you and the property. The money in your bank, the money in your pocket, it's a promise to pay someone. It's because it's not real money. So the man in the street with one ounce of silver is richer than the man with a million pound of promissory notes in the bank. Correct. Because the bank will own that. So when people get their heads around that idea, then they start to worry because they realize they're still in the land registry. When this system goes down, Jack, you know better than anyone, they're going to come after everything. Yeah. They're going to wipe, they're going to put everybody in. And could you imagine if you had six or seven Joy Six Packs with the flash motor, the nice Rolex watch that they're just basically scraped them in to pay for, but they managed to keep the girlfriend happy they're out on a Friday night, nice restaurant, they're managing it. All of a sudden, he can't access his bank account to pay that meal. The girlfriend can't access her bank account to pay that meal. The car outside has, you know, suddenly disappeared. They're having to walk around. These people are so materialistic because it's been made part of the lifestyle. I've seen people take their own life for less if, if this thing pops, it's going to be it's going to be a mad mark situation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the problem we have, because we'll have to pick this up on a, on a part two. In, yeah. in the United States, you and I have spoken about this uh, privately. 
but they've deliberately in human resources and interviews and hiring, they deliberately profiled a certain type of individual to become a police officer. And yeah. we, we can discuss that maybe on part two. Who is yeah. it that they're looking for that have made up the majority, the bulk, B-U-L-K, the bulk of the police force? They, that profile in, individual, what we're seeing in the United States is if with, it's within your right, if you refuse to give your name, uh, because then you start to enter into contract and you're starting to participate in their theatrical spectacle of their legal maritime law system. The police in the United States, you most likely will be murdered before you could even be put into a cell for two hours and have a chance to uh, approach the legal side to plead your case. It's so violent now, you will be dead on the side of the street, either choked to death, shot to death, tasered to death, or suffocated by three, four, five officers. And your dead corpse, then it's up to your family to say, was this pr police brutality? Well, they'll claim you were resisting arrest, you weren't cooperating uh, conveniently, maybe their body cams won't be working. So it's so violent now that you will absolutely not be alive to plead your case or to defend yourself on why you were within your rights to not give your name. And that's another thing that's scary. There's such brutality and Neanderthal violent profiled individuals that have been hired and all the good guys have since been retired. They've given up, uh, they've left. There isn't anyone, uh, so in the United States, it's very difficult. You don't know if you're going to come out alive when you're pulled over for a traffic violation. I don't know yeah, what it's I, like I, in England, but yeah. the United States, you have a 50-50 chance of living. Like say mm -hmm. your taillight was out yeah. or you were speeding. It's, yeah. it's, very, uh, it's very concerning in this country. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I, I have the absolute most respect for, for the American citizens in terms of the, the potential risk to their life that they that they are in when it comes to dealing with the police. And what I would say to them is that, you know, just play the just play the game. Because if you are in a situation where you're getting pulled over and the guy's got a gun and he's a little bit of an egotistic prick, excuse my French, um, I would just play along with it and say, no problem, officer, what would you like? Oh, here's my driving license. The key after that is, I think, for me, when the right to me in letter form after the event of something taking place, because I have never given them anything, it then becomes quite interesting how they've acquired that information. That sets up a number of different avenues I can attack their document on. And I'm able to do that. For someone that's not, it's one thing to refuse your information at the roadside, but you've got to know how to articulate the rest of the process. And I'm making it sound possibly very easy here, but it's not. And I would say to the average person listening to, to, to listening audience here, if you don't understand or have an interest in exploring more of this side of it, 
don't try and inter- articulate it because you'll cause yourself unwanted grief, um, possibly yeah. death. Yeah. But what what I will say, Jet, is that I, there's a real feeling among me and other uh, private trust individuals that this system is closing in, that the end is coming, whether that be that we're going to enter into something better or we're not. It's just a complete and utter reset of the whole thing. There is a sense of uh, change is well overdue. And the people that are in the United Kingdom that are representing the police are people from unstable backgrounds that they are deliberately um, uh, scoped out up through the selection process when they come in to apply for the police. I know for a fact, if you come from a stable background and you've got a good family upbringing, you're less likely to get into the police than someone who's come from maybe a broken family and has suffered trauma. Because the police's objective is, if you've suffered trauma, you know how to deal with it better than someone that hasn't. Oh, so you're saying if I've come from a stable family and I suddenly see somebody with a bottle sticking out beside their neck, I'm going to not cope with that as someone who has maybe had a violent father and used to beat up his mother and then, you know, his mother died from the results of an attack. It's very strange. And it's those individuals who appear to be able to be more programmed through their system of programming, through the training process. Um, that's just my take on it from my observation and experience. Right. Well, we'll uh, and we'll end this episode because it's uh, well over an hour. We'll have to pick this yeah. up on part two to talk more about the maritime law and how the legal system, we definitely, with the birth certificate, we definitely are slaves. And technically, yeah. when you have to register your vehicle and the deed yeah. on your house, I mean, do you really own it? Uh, no, not according to their system. And then we can, on part two, talk about what I mention a lot on the outer limits. And, and when I get interviewed, the technologies now of these pharmaceutical injections and DNA programming. Yeah. We're getting into a, a now a very advanced legal realm where they can state claim over you as a soul. They're trying to advance it to the next level where they own your consciousness and yeah. they they want to claim jurisdiction even after death. Mm-hmm. What happens what happens to the essence of you as an individual when you're archived, when you take your last breath and you die, let, let's say you lived uh comfortable life and you were fortunate to live to be 90. Mm-hmm. They have technology now and these bizarre legalese where they want to be able to claim ownership of the essence of who you were the entire 90 years and also any future prospects of where are you archived? Are you in the Akashic record? Are you in God's memory in counter space? If so, they want to claim rights to that entity even after death and that's what all this transhumanism and this dna altering and this corporate patented law if it gets into your cells and the essence of who you are they want rights to that and any future rights if you were to be resurrected or you go off as some might think to heaven or some other dimensional life form they're like oh no 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 we own that individual because back here on earth 
They sign this. They have our technology. We claim rights to their consciousness. It's that's at the level. So if, I'm stuttering a little bit, but uh, Harry, what's so frustrating with me is you can't, you and I, we can't get Joe Sixpack. The the common and Joe Sixpack. I don't mean that he is in shape and he has the the muscles in his ab. I mean the one who watches sports and he's drinking beer. Six pack of beer. Yeah. Joe, six, mm-hmm. we can't get Joe six pack to understand what birth certificate is all about. It's traded on the global stock markets. Registering your car, your home is really registering to a state, and they're just, you know, letting you uh, use the car or live in the home, but they're claiming if we can't get Joe six pack to understand, understand that aspect of law that's in Europe and the Americas and the uh, British Empire, there's no way you're going to get Joe Sixpack to understand what I just mentioned, that they're jockeying for ownership and claiming your consciousness even after death. Mm-hmm. So that's where I get frustrated. I absolutely get frustrated because I like, there's no way the knowledge that I have and, and where the angle that they're headed, I might as well keep my mouth shut. There isn't yeah. anyone that's going to understand <laughs> what I found out, what I've discovered. Yeah, so but I'm even... Around, I, I'm walking around life going, this is unbelievable. No one's going to believe this. No one has enough yeah. intelligence or concentration yeah. to sit for an hour, two hours to connect the dots. They they have a two, three minute. They want to watch TikTok or some YouTube video or some sporting event. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm my conclusion is humanity is lost. And I don't know if there's 30 people left, 3,000, 100,000 worldwide that have this ability to understand what's going on, but we're highly outnumbered and there's no solution from man that's going to stop this. No. 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 I, I mean, I'll say very quickly because I know you need to end it. Um, I had a lot. I, this is a very lonely path. When you have the knowledge, whether it's your level jet or my level or, or another person that's been on before, um, you it's a you become very thin on friends because you see things differently and and, and even when you you're sharing something simple like, oh why are you paying council tax yeah you have to pay council tax no you don't the mind starts to wander but they can't compute anything out all they like to sign all was i can save money that's what they're thinking but you're thinking no learn this process and kill a lot more it's not about the money. It's about the, it's about the principal argument. They don't want to learn. They just want an easy life. Anything that equals an easy life, or they'd rather give somebody some money to go and do it for them. So they're, 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 it's by design, and you know better than MDJ. People are dumbed down for a reason, and so they don't have this hunger for more information because information is, is powerful if it's in the wrong hands or the right hands. Yeah, so we've, they've... They've socially engineered the global population. They've lulled, they've lulled them into a f- false sense of comfort and entertainment. So n- no one wants to uh, have their reality bubble popped. Don't disturb my reality bubble and just entertain me. So we have 7 billion people or close to that. In that psychological profile, it's, it's game over. Uh, there's no way humanity is going to wake up and pull together, uh, hold hands and 
as a community overturn this. Uh, and <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's very lonely. So what happens is digitally, you and I can relate. And for now we have access to the internet and these technologies. So uh, we communicate, you're thousands of miles from me in a different country. I worry about the time when you and I, and some of our, when we won't have access to the internet or these apps to be able to communicate. And then all I'm gonna have to do is hope like heck that you're hanging in there in these trials and tribulations, you're gonna to have to do the same because we won't be able to communicate or, or be able to keep in touch and encourage one another. We're gonna to have to go based on memory of past conversations. And we're also gonna to have to go into our extra dimensional senses and try to meditate and try to connect at a conscious level to get a feeling, is Harry still okay? Is he still alive? We'll have to develop those type of skills, uh, which are possible. They've long since been drummed out of us. I think, mm -hmm. I think thousands and thousands of years ago, we were able to do that. We, we had a closer connection and we've been dumbed down, but uh, I'm very uh, concerned where we're headed. And I'm focusing my time and energy on the uh, spiritual aspect of the higher realm, the higher dimension, where I think the solution will come. And then whether anyone agrees with me or not, I think it's very lonely. I'm like, well, I'm going to build a spiritual connection and take my time and energy instead of pursuing plastic and leather like you in your 20s realize that wasn't for you. You went a different course. You could have easily have fallen into that trap and six, seven figure income. And um, you didn't. Yeah. So yeah. uh, just like me, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not pursuing plastic and leather. I'm going to take my time and energy and exchange it for a spiritual journey, a spiritual relationship uh, that I believe that there's a God, a creator, a divine. And if, if I'm wrong, okay, then the, the joke's on me. But I'd rather do that than spend my time and energy for plastic and leather, which I know is going to be confiscated or owned by the global elite or this false legal system anyway. So why am I gonna work extra for a fancy house, car, clothing, jewelry, pensions, when they claim yeah. stake of it and they'll have enough guns and troops and tasers and tanks and billy clubs to take it from me. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not gonna work 50, 60, 70 hours a week for plastic and leather that they're gonna confiscate. Let them try to confiscate my relationship with the higher being, God or creator. Yeah. That's, that's gonna be interesting to for them to try to confiscate that because it doesn't exist in this reality. Yeah. I mean, I've, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with you, Jack. Well, it's, just, it's uh, good to have you. I know it's getting, uh, you know, late for you because of the time difference being over in Scotland, but I definitely, we could do a part two. There's a couple others that we're having because there's too much to cover in an hour, 10 hour, 20 minutes. Can't do it. So if I can yeah. have you back again, you know, we can schedule it uh, first yep. part of December or something like that. Uh, yep. You're you're one of four right now mm -hmm. that there, that I need a part two and a part three. But you okay. know, we can talk privately with your schedule, and my schedule, and get you on in December and, and resume this uh, because it's really getting interesting now. But we got to shut it down yeah. for part one. <laughs> 
No, yeah, no, I know we could talk for, for, for hours on this, but there is a significant part that I'm getting to. Um, so I, I would I would welcome a second part, definitely. So look forward to that. Well, um, we'll uh, leave it at that. At this point, we want to thank Harry Neal for being our guest on uh, episode thank 28, you. Ethereal Underground, episode 28. And we'll look forward to his next visit sometime in, in December. We'll just see how circumstances allow. And we wish you well. Well, Harry, you and your family, and uh, you, and you, keep, you and I keep in touch. We'll keep in touch privately anyway, but we want you back again uh, with the Ethereal Underground audience. Thank you, Jeff. Good night. Good night.